You're listening to True Vine Church Community Podcast. We hope this message sparks and sustains revival with your relationship with Jesus. For more information about True Vine, visit truevinephiladelphia.com. We're going to jump back into the story of the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Romans 4, Romans 5, Hebrews 11, and James 2 today. So, be prepared we're going to be all over the place. Uh, maybe 62 other books of the Bible, maybe. We'll see. I'm going to reference Matthew and a couple other things. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you dwell in the praises of your people, and that when your people praise you, you manifest your presence or you express yourself to us. And we want those expressions. We bless those expressions, Jesus. We love it when we're confident that you're near us because we need that. I pray that you would be with us as we look into your word and I uh, ask for extra grace today because there's a lot to chew on and I pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, well, good morning again. The last couple months, we've been going through this, uh, well, the whole Bible, <laughs> and we're, we're in March and still in Genesis 12, <laughs> so uh, we're going to speed up, actually, after next week and start to move a little quickly, uh, a little more quickly, but a few weeks ago, we introduced you both some stories and some principles that are foundational to what it is to be a follower of Jesus and foundational to the story of the Bible. One of those stories was the creation story, uh, not just the creation of the world, but the creation of Adam and Eve, and it was accompanied with a principle that every human being is made in the image of God. Even the ones you don't like, even the ones that you've never met, even strangers, everybody is made in the image of God, therefore, everybody is equal. Everybody is equally made in the image of God. Men are not more in the image of God than women. No race is superior to another race. We are all equally made in the image of God in the same way, and we get to reflect the complexity of God in the ways that he has created us. But then we got to Genesis 3. We talked about this co-rebellion where Adam and Eve co-rebelled with a serpent to reject God's leadership, to question his word, and to introduce sin into the world. So at first we found out that every human being has inherent value. Made in the image of God, every human being, just by virtue of being a human being, has value. But by Genesis 3, sin has been introduced by our parents, Adam and Eve, and because they brought sin into the human experience, not only is every human being inherently valuable, But now every human being is inherently flawed or broken. We call this, some people will call this a sinful nature, some people will call this the flesh. I'm not really concerned with the terminology, I want you to understand the idea. This is the idea, that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, something changed in our hearts where now we are predisposed to sin. We have a, we lean towards sin. Which is to say, if we were put, if we were given a clean slate, We would choose sin because something in our heart is off. The compass is broken. The GPS is is not working. And even if we are given a clean slate, we would choose sin in our fallen state. This is why, you know, did did Adam and Eve have a clean slate? Yes. And they chose 
sin. Not be, they did not have a sinful nature. They were not created that way. They exercised their free will to choose to sin. But Noah got off the boat to a clean slate. But because something in his heart was broken, he reintroduced sin into a world that God had cleansed. This is why when you and I come to Christ, we are made new creations. The, that predisposition to sin, God changes us, so now we have a predisposition to choose righteousness. The old is gone, the new comes. So now instead of leaning towards sin, when we come to Jesus, now we lean toward righteousness. You might say, well, then why do I still sin? You sin? I haven't sinned in years. Just kidding, obviously. So that's why these buttons are working so hard today. Um, the reason you and I still sin is because of something called the flesh. It's that lingering, stinking, rotting, leftover corpse of our old self. It's just still there. It's crucified, and we put it to death, but it still remains. And we will battle against that until we are with Jesus. But here's what I want you to understand from the, the last 10 weeks. Every human being is inherently valuable regardless of what they believe about anything. Just by being a human being, they have value. But every human being is also inherently flawed, even if they believe the right things. They're still flawed. We're going to find that in Abraham and Sarah. As we look at Abraham and Sarah today, what we're going to find is this couple, this married couple, that are actually called righteous, but they're also very broken. Um, they make some weird decisions that we would consider sinful, and I think were considered sinful even at the time. Abraham and Sarah were this married couple. We're gonna take today and next week to look at Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, and Jacob and Rachel. So I get Abraham and Sarah today, and then next week our very own Emily Santiago will be preaching, and she will... You guys know I'm right here. Like, Whatever. So it was my idea. All right. So <laughs> um, today I'm going to talk about Abraham and Sarah. And the story of Abraham and Sarah is the story of how broken people can be made right with God. And we're going to learn from Abraham and Sarah. But before we learn from Abraham and Sarah, let me ask you, can you learn from imperfect people? Or do they have to be perfect for you to learn from them? You can learn from imperfect people? Yeah, there are no perfect people. See, that's the problem. I don't know if everyone understands that. That there, If you can't learn from imperfect people because they're imperfect, then you also can't teach because you're not perfect. So no one can learn from you. So here we are. We're going to learn from these imperfect people. We're not going to claim that Abraham and Sarah are perfect. What we're going to claim, though, is that they are made right with God. How... Do imperfect, sinful, flawed, broken people, how do they become right with God? That's actually the moral of the story of Abraham and Sarah throughout the Bible. So throughout the Old and New Testaments, Abraham and Sarah are used as a model of how a person is made right with God. And I love this. This, this Abraham and Sarah stuff is going to undo maybe some oversimplified and even inaccurate beliefs that we may have about how a person is made right with God. 
Now, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. Let me just give some context. I just want to catch you off from the last couple of weeks. Genesis 10, Noah has gotten off the ark. He's come into a totally remade world. There are no sinful people. That, uh, sorry, <laughs> there's no sinful society. The people that got off the ark still had sin in their hearts, as we find, because they establish a sinful society. They repopulate the earth. By Genesis 10, we have something called the Table of Nations. It lists 70 families uh, that, that kind of repopulate the earth after Noah and the flood. 70 families. Now, it appears that there were more than 70 families, but just for some reason, Genesis 10 just identifies these specific 70 families. Those 70 families conspire against God to build the Tower of Babel. God decides as an act of judgment to scatter these 70 families Across the face of the earth, he confuses their language. He hands them over to the charge of lesser spirits. He says, this is in Deuteronomy 32, I'm taking these 70 families, I'm scattering them, and they will be responsible to, or they will be under the guidance of lesser spirits, which in Deuteronomy are called demons. But then, in Genesis 12, this is right after the Tower of Babel, in Genesis 12, God essentially says, but I'll pick one family for myself. I'm scattering these 70 families, but I'm going to pick one, Abraham and Sarah. This is actually no different than when he picked Noah's family, and he started with Adam and Eve and their family. I mean, this is this third or fourth time through now in Genesis where God decides to start over with a family. And now he's starting over with Abraham and Sarah. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, this is really where we're introduced to the story of Abraham and Sarah. You might see the name Abram, that's Abraham. You might see the name Sarai, that's Sarah. I'm going to use Abraham and Sarah because that's how the New Testament refers to them. And I live in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, because I'm not that old. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the, ones who, the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So these three verses have a command, leave. He says, go. And, and God, by the way, doesn't tell him, tell him where to go. Just Start walking. Just, just start walking. I'm not telling you where you're going. I'm not telling you how to get there. There is no ETA. Just, just start going, and that's an act of faith for them. There's also a, pr a promise or a, a blessing. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. There's also a promise. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is telling Abraham and Sarah, through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. Hmm. Did they have any descendants that would be a blessing to the whole world? Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, says that Abraham and Sarah, after generation and generation and generation, are the ancestors of Jesus. That's the ancestor or the family through whom all the world is blessed because we know at some point every tongue and tribe and nation, or that is to say every family, will have the opportunity to respond to God by putting their faith in Jesus. 
And when we are in heaven, there will be representatives from every nation, every ethnicity, every people group, every family of the earth will have at least a representative that was blessed through Jesus. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's more of a November sermon. But in Genesis 1, uh, uh, sorry, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I just want to give you a couple things about Abraham and Sarah that you need to understand if we're going to get Romans, Hebrews, and James correctly. First, I want you to understand Abraham and Sarah had no Bible because they're in it. <laughs> they're in the beginning. I mean, we're 12 chapters in, Abraham and Sarah in the Bible. They didn't even have a little bit of the Bible. I mean, King Josiah, he's in the Bible, but at least he had Deuteronomy. Abraham and Sarah didn't have anything. Because Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written by Moses. Well, Moses didn't come till like 500 years after this. They didn't have one word of the Bible. Yet, they did have God's word. What word did they have? Well, go from your country. Leave your relatives. Leave your father's house. They had what God spoke to them personally in Genesis 1 through 3. That was the word of God that they had. And so then they have a choice. Should I obey that or not obey that? They didn't have the whole Bible like you and I have. See, if God spoke to me, and I had no Bible, if God spoke to me and it was three or four sentences, I would say, God, can I get a little more? Okay, we have a little more. We have more than Abraham and Sarah had, right? Now, I think sometimes our attitude is, God, this is too much. <laughs> but actually, this is just right. This is perfectly sufficient. I mean, this teaches us everything we need to know for life and holiness and salvation. It teaches us how to listen to the Holy Spirit. It teaches us how to discern spirits. It teaches us how to do, participate in miracles. I mean, it teaches us everything that we need to know in this life to be faithful to Jesus. So if they didn't have a Bible, that means they didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have a tabernacle. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have prophets and priests. They didn't have a sacrificial system. They just had these words from God to be faithful to. So while we have more to respond to, this is how I would summarize it. Abraham and Sarah believed every word God spoke. We should believe every word God has spoken to us. Don't doubt any words that God has spoken. We should believe every word that God has spoken to us. See, this is an example. I preached on this a couple of months ago. Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah tithed. Not because there was a law to tithe, because there wasn't. They tithed because they were grateful. You know what I mean? So sometimes people will say, well, tithing is like a, it's a religious law. Well, it wasn't for Abraham and Sarah. There were no religious laws. There was just gratitude. That's why I personally tithe. Not because I have a command to, but because I have an example of someone that did. Before there ever was a command, there was Abraham and Sarah saying, thank you, God. That's in Genesis 14. This is another thing that's interesting, and you're going to need to understand this, so just sit up straight and try to, try to get this here. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant or a promise or an agreement with Abraham and Sarah, which we'll read in a moment. There is an outward sign of the covenant. Through Abraham, God introduces an outward side of the side, sign of the covenant called circumcision. Now, I'm not going to get into what circumcision is. Uh, Google it. Don't. <laughs> circumcision 
in the Bible is an outward sign of a covenant that was made with God. Um, I'll give you an example. I have a wedding ring. This wedding ring is an outward sign of a covenant that I've made with my wife. If I take the wedding ring off, does the covenant still count? Yes, I checked. I double checked. (laughs) The, The covenant still counts if I lose the wedding ring, does that nullify the covenant? No. Can you be married without a wedding ring? Yes. If some random person puts on a wedding ring, does that mean they're married? No, right? It's, the power is not in this. It is simply an outward sign. That is what circumcision was in the Old Testament. It was a sign that people had made a covenant or entered into the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was the outward sign. Could you be in covenant without being circumcised? Yes. Could you be circumcised without being in the covenant? Yes. For us in the New Testament, it's not circumcision, it's baptism. Baptism is the outward sign of a covenant that already existed. So we'll get to this when we get to Romans in a few moments, but it's important for us to understand that God made the covenant in Genesis 15. The circumcision comes later. That's going to matter in a moment. So Abraham introduces tithing without a command to tithe. It's through Abraham and his covenant with God that circumcision is introduced. Further, Abraham and Sarah did not come from Israel. I don't know if you have thought about this. Israel is their grandson. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. They didn't come from Israel. Israel came from them. Right? Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah have a son named Jacob. Jacob's name becomes Israel. Jacob has 12 sons that we call the 12 tribes of Israel. So they didn't come from Israel. Israel came from them. And in the Bible, Israel is both a person, a people, and a place. Jacob has his name changed to Israel. That's Israel the person. Then his family, his 12 descendants and their descendants and their descendants, we call those the people of Israel. And then there's the place where they settled, which would be in what the Bible calls Canaan. Uh, That's the place Israel. But I'm just telling you, Abraham and Sarah preceded all of that. They didn't come from Israel. Israel came from them. You've seen where this falls in the storyline, and this is going to matter. Furthermore, Abraham and Sarah were ancestors of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, lists Abraham. I don't know if you can get any earlier in the New Testament than Matthew 1, 1. And already we're seeing, okay, this is just, we're picking up with the old. We are starting with that promise that was made to Abraham and Sarah in both Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Now the promise in uh, Genesis 12 was you walk the land and I'm gonna bless all the families of the world through you by expanding your family. Well, here's where this gets a little sticky. A couple years pass, there's no kids yet. Almost 10 years pass and there's no kids yet. God, I thought you said that you were gonna bless the whole world through us. Um, We've gone years and there's no child. So that's where Genesis 15 picks up. This is Genesis 15, verses two through six. 
Several years have passed, and Abraham says, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham is kind of complaining to God, God, you said you're going to give me this big family, and I, my butler is going to be my uh, heir. All my stuff is going to be left to this employee or this servant that I had named Eliezer from Damascus. Verse 3, Abraham also said, Since you have given me no son, one who has been born in my house, referring to Eliezer, is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Okay, so Abraham's starting to question, well, maybe what God meant by my family was you know, this employee that I'll leave everything to. And God's like, no. A, a biological son from your own body, your own child. Verse five, God took Abraham outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. God said to Abraham, so shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord and God credited it to Abraham as righteousness. This Genesis fifteen six is going to be quoted in Acts, in Romans, in Hebrews, in Galatians, in James, and elsewhere in the New Testament as the beginning of the belief that you and I are made right with God through faith. That you and I, broken people, just like Abraham and Sarah, broken, flawed, sinful people, we are made right with God, not because we worked hard at it, but simply because God said something and we trusted him. And in our case, it's that God said, Jesus is my son. Jesus was raised from the dead, and I'll show you this in a moment. This is the beginning of a doctrine called justification by faith. Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and God credited it to Abraham as righteousness. And as we're going to see, the New Testament, both Paul, James, and the writer of Hebrews develop this idea that we are made right with God by simply believing. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 4. This will be up on the screen for you as well. I want to explain, well, Paul's going to explain for us why Abraham and Sarah matter as an example of what we believe. Okay, Romans chapter four, I'm gonna read verses one through five. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? In this context, flesh doesn't mean your sinful flesh. It just means like he's, our bi- like he's Jewish and we're Jewish. Well, he was pre-Jewish and we're Jewish. We're his ancestors. For if Abraham was made right with God, that's what the word justified means. If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? There's that Genesis 15, 6 again. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, the wages are not credited as a favor, but what is due. Paul's saying here, if you work for something, When you get your paycheck, that's not a favor, (laughs) that's an obligation, right? But we don't work for our salvation. We believe for it. Now to the one who works, the wages are not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So this is what Paul's saying. 
God rewarded Abraham's faith as a favor, not an obligation. Abraham did not earn his salvation, but God showed him favor by extending or by making them right with one another, by making Abraham right with God. Okay, this next part to me is fascinating. Hebrews, uh, sorry, Romans 4 and 9. Remember, God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15. Abraham is not circumcised till Genesis 17. So is Abraham saved before or after he was circumcised? Before. Okay. The faith existed before the outward sign. That's what Paul argues here. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was credited, there's Genesis 15, 6 again. Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. God said, Abraham, you're righteous before there was ever any act, before there was ever any outward sign, before there was ever any wedding ring, before there was ever any baptism. God said, you're righteous. Does a person, can a person be baptized but not genuinely saved? Yes. Can a person be genuinely saved without being baptized? Well, ask the thief on the cross. Was he baptized? Baptism does not save us. It is the sign that we are saved. Does that make sense? So it's, it is to us what circumcision was in the Old Testament, is what baptism is to us. It's the outward sign that something has already happened internally. Verse 10. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So he had the faith while uncircumcised. I know this is a weird thing to talk about. Totally acknowledge that. We would say it this way. He had faith while unbaptized. You know what I mean? That, that's kind of the way we would say it in the New Covenant. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world was not through law, but through the righteousness of faith. When God promised, I'm going to bless all the families of the world through you, was that because Abraham followed all the dietary laws that Moses laid out? No, because Moses hadn't happened yet. Did God bless Abraham because Abraham followed the Ten Commandments? There were no Ten Commandments. So why did God bless Abraham? Well, because God's a blessing God. That's why. It's, we know nothing about that Abraham was this wonderful you know, model citizen. That's not how Genesis 12 started. Genesis 12 just started with God made a choice. I know I sound like a Calvinist right now. I'm not, but I sound like one. Well, wait till I get to James. You'll know I'm not. All right, Romans 4, last part. There's Genesis 15, 6 again, showing up three times in Romans 4. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. 
Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also. So that's not just for Abraham's sake, but for ours. To whom it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So Abraham had to believe that God would bless all the world through him, which is foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus is not foreshadowed for us. We're looking back at Jesus. We're believing here. What we have to believe is that Jesus was raised from the dead by God. That's the promise we believe in or don't believe in, but in order to be made right with God, we must believe that. That he who was delivered over because of our wrongdoings was raised because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that phrase, peace with God. You ever felt anxious toward God? Like, I don't know how he feels about me right now. Is he angry at me? Is he even paying attention? Is he going to get me? Is he out to get me? Is he going to stomp me? Is he going to spite me? This is what this passage says, that through Jesus you have peace with God. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be waiting to get got. That You have peace with God through Jesus. Now really quickly, I'm going to move quickly through Hebrews 11, just because it gives us a little more. Hebrews 11 says that by faith... This is Hebrews 11, 8 through 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed God. So this is what Abraham did by faith. He didn't just believe, he obeyed. He obeyed God, going out to a place which, was, which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he left not knowing where he was going. That's some septa faith right there. <laughs> Verse 9 Verse 8, by faith he obeyed. Verse 9, by faith he lived as a stranger in the land of promise. So faith is not just for starting the journey. Faith is while you're on the journey. That's, it's not just like, well, let's, let's just walk off the ledge and see if God catches us. But no, the whole way you're falling down, <laughs> you're maintaining faith. Every day you wake up and you start faith over again. The choices that you make, the little mundane details. He lived by faith as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 11, this is not just an Abraham thing. His own wife, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since he considered him faithful who had promised. Don't forget Sarah in this process. This is Abraham and Sarah as a couple going through this. Remember, I said that God promised them children and years went by without a child. Sarah got so at the end of her rope that she said to her husband, sleep with my maid. Have a child with her and I'll just consider that our child. And then in something that's never happened before in human history, this woman got jealous. And there was competition between these two women. Even though it was Sarah's idea, sleep with my maid, have a child with her, that's how we will take matters into our own hands and we will, we will fulfill God's promise for him because he has not done it on our timeline. And of course, that backfires. And as soon as that little baby Ishmael is born, Sarah resents the whole situation, even though it was her idea. And Abraham 
as a typical man, is like, what? What did I do? This was hard for Sarah. I mean, to the point where when she was told within a year you'll be pregnant at the ripe old age of 90, she laughed. Abraham laughed too. They were all laughing at just the, the ridiculousness. This was hard for Sarah. This, faith was not just for Abraham. This was for Sarah too. And she suffered through this. And this was hard for her to watch that little boy that her, that her husband had with another woman was 14. She watched that child go, uh, Hagar and Ishmael, she watched Ishmael go through 14 birthdays before she had a son. But then she had, miraculously, a son from her husband, Abraham. And that's Isaac. Uh, yep. Well, it seems like it. All right. Chill out, kids. This is not youth group. All right. Now I want to go to James chapter 2. This is the last passage I want to look at. So, lest you think, oh, well, in order to be made right with God, all I have to do is say, I believe. Oh, I went to an altar call 20 years ago and prayed some prayer that my camp counselor led me through, and I grew up in Sunday school. I believe. Yeah, you believe the Bible? Yeah, I believe the Bible. Lest you think that all you have to do is sign your name on a couple theological statements James, the brother of Jesus, comes in. The brother of Jesus. James, who didn't even believe in Jesus right away. Hard to believe in your brother as Messiah. Cut James some slack. James, the brother of Jesus, comes in and says, listen, you're, you're, just, you're made right with God by having faith, but there is a type of faith. There is a quality of faith. This is how we will know that your faith is real by your deeds. James says this in James 2. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer, the rhetorical question there is no. Faith that doesn't result in action is not real faith. It's dead faith. Or, he says, it's useless. Useless to the point where it won't even save you. Simply Simply saying, I believe in God, you know who else believes in God? Satan. You know where I got that from? James 2. Let's keep reading. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead. So just saying, I have faith, but not doing anything with it, is dead faith. But someone may well say, well, you have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And I know how they would show their faith without the works. They would print out a doctrinal statement and say, my doctrine's more better than your doctrine, and that's how they would try to do it, because that's how people do that. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe that, and shudder. See, this is what makes our faith real, as opposed to the faith that the demonic world has, is they believe that there's one God, and they hate that. 
We believe in one God, and we love that. They believe that there's one God, and they rebel against him. We believe in one God, and we cooperate with him, and we are obedient, and we surrender to him. So the actions matter. The actions demonstrate the genuineness or the authenticity of the faith. Verse 20, are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, (laughs) James can say that, Jesus' brother, you foolish person, that faith that works is useless. Just saying, I have all the right beliefs, without doing something with them, James says, is useless. So James is saying, let's go further than saying, I believe in God. Let's do something. And the example he gives, which I read earlier, was, how about feeding the hungry? How about clothing the naked? He gives very practical examples here. Verse 21, here we go again. Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. This is what works, and I'm going to just say like works of faith, not works of the law. This is what works of faith do. They perfect your faith. They complete it. They fill it in. They flesh it out. They uh, they give you an experiential understanding of the faith that you claim to have. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, I'm gonna take a risk here. Martin Luther, famous reformer, nailed 95 objections to what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church at the time. He nailed those objections to the door of a church and Martin Luther and others were these reformers and they taught justification by faith alone. Martin Luther wanted to remove the book of James from the Bible. People don't know that, but Martin Luther called the book of James the epistle of straw. He wanted to get rid of it because he didn't like this part about you gotta do something. He thought, this sounds too much like works righteousness. But it's not works righteousness. It's still justification by faith. It's just justification by a faith that produces works of faith. Does that make sense? We should not remove James from the Bible. We should make sure that we don't develop theological systems that avoid the book of James. Does that make sense? Well, I'm this feels so good to say. We, we have to integrate the whole New Testament and the whole Old Testament into our faith, not slice portions out so that we have a nice, neat, tidy system. And so James says this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is not contradicting Paul. This is building on what Paul said. This is building on what Paul said. Paul said you're justified by faith. He did not say you're justified by faith alone. He said you're justified by faith. James is saying you're justified by faith that produces works. Your faith has to result in something. There has to be an outward flow. There has to be actions. There has to be And I'm going to, again, I'm using the phrase works of faith, not works of the law. Works of faith. See, Abraham didn't have any works of the law. 
because there was no law. Abraham only had works of faith. There were no rules for him to live up to. There were no external standards. Verse 23, in the scripture, no, sorry, verse 25, in the same way was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Please don't believe a gospel that leads you into a dead faith. Oh, repeat this prayer. You don't have to do anything else. That's a lie. <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying that there's a specific hoop you have to jump through, but believe in the gospel and then act on the gospel. Do something with it. Otherwise, the faith is called useless and dead in James. There have to be some works of faith. I'm not gonna get specific because that's gonna turn into legalism. There have to be some works of faith that result from your belief in the gospel. That, w- that is what will demonstrate that your belief in the gospel is genuine. That is what will demonstrate that your faith is differentiated from the faith of the demonic world. Some sort of works of faith. Okay, does that make sense? I realize I'm on thin ice, but I'm really not. I'm only on thin ice for people that read too much. So, Abraham and Sarah model a life of faith that was not dependent on religious laws, but plain and practical belief in God when he spoke. And that's, what I'm, that's just what I'm calling us to, plain, practical belief in God. This is all I'm saying. Believe everything God said, and then do something about it. That's it. I, mean, I know it took me 40 minutes to get here, but believe everything God said, and then do something about it. Your faith should make a difference in your life and in the world. So as those, of, those that are, we, we do not live under the law, meaning the Mosaic law. We live under the law of the Spirit. How would we live as those that are not under the law? Well, Abraham and Sarah were also not under the law. It, to live as one who is not under the law means following God, even if you don't know where that's going to take you. It means giving because of gratitude for God's provision, Living as one who is not under the law means believing all of God's promises, means withholding nothing from God, and it means that we have actions because of the faith that God has given us, not law on the outside. But believing God is hard. I mean, in a way, it's simple. You either believe it or you don't, but there are other things in our souls that prevent us from believing God. Sometimes, a lot of our doubt in God can be boiled down into two issues. Either we believe that God can't do something or God won't do something. Either he can't, meaning he doesn't have the ability, he doesn't have the power. Man, God would really like to help me out here, but he just can't. That's one area. The other area is, well, I know God could, but I just don't think he will. So it's almost like a question of, is God good And uh, uh, those two categories represent an awful lot of the areas where we have doubt. We get hurt in churches and we wonder, if God is good, how did that happen? Or we experience loss in life and we wonder, well, maybe God couldn't stop this. Or maybe God, you know, why would God allow this if he has all the power in the universe? And we start to doubt God and we say, well, I want to believe you, God, but I'm struggling. So that is where the faith comes in. Can you believe even when there's some stuff in your soul 
that's making that difficult. This is the way I want to wrap up today. I want us to just declare, I believe God. There might, there might be stuff in your life where you're having a hard time believing. You, you might have a hard time believing that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. You might have a hard time believing that the Bible is actually reliable. You might have a hard time believing that God can heal people. You might have a hard time believing that the stuff in your family, God can heal and fix and repair. You might have a hard time believing in God's provision. You might have a hard time believing in God's protection. There could be a variety of ways that you are doubting or questioning God. What I would like to do today is just declare or proclaim publicly, God, I believe you. I believe your word is true. I believe you brought Jesus back from the dead. I believe you're a healer. I believe you're a provider. I believe you're a protector. I believe you're good. I believe you're all-powerful. Whatever it is for you, where you have to kind of publicly, you have to say it. Sometimes you, have, you can't just let it rattle around in your head. You gotta say it. It's a, it's a proclamation. You know, the spiritual world doesn't always have access to your thoughts. You gotta put them on notice sometimes. This is for your good. This is for your community's good. And this is for those in the spiritual atmosphere, spiritual realm that need to hear you because they, they don't know what's going on in your head. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're just gonna take a little bit of time and declare our belief in God. Jesus, your word also says that faith is a gift that you give us. This is not something we muster up on our own in our own strength. And so, Lord, I pray for the gift of faith. Faith comes by hearing your word. We've heard your word, an awful lot of it. We've heard your word. You're good. You will give us this gift. I ask Jesus, fill us with faith right now to believe that everything your word says is true, that every characteristic or every attribute of you that the Bible gives us is true of you. Give us the boldness to proclaim that. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you need to, we're just going to take time to pray. If you need to declare areas where you are trusting or believing God, let's do that right now. This is what happens when a person puts their faith in Jesus and becomes a Christian is born again, gets saved, that in one moment, they respond to God with belief, and in that same moment, God says, you are righteous. And then they put that faith to work after that. That in the same moment, we exercise faith, which is a gift that God gives us. God declares us right with him. He says, oh, I have peace with this person. There's no animosity between us anymore. There's no judgment. When a person, puts, when a person says, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, God says, not guilty. And then we put that faith to work. And in works of faith that benefit others and often come 
at our own expense. So Lord, would the quality of our faith be revealed and strengthened? We do not want dead faith. We do not want useless faith. Useless faith won't even save us. Dead faith will not even save us. We don't want to just ascribe to a set of theological propositions. We want to believe and trust. And we want the type of belief that results in acts of faith. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So next Sunday, Emily Santiago is going to preach. I want you to be praying for her this week. I'm looking forward to it. Our elders have invited her and asked her to come speak. So uh, be praying for her this week. I want to thank you for being with us this morning. And feel free to linger. We're not kicking you out. You can hang out for a little while. See you next Sunday.